Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. We have these cards that are in the seat back in front of you. They are called Connect Cards, and they're important for us here at New Hope uh, for a lot of reasons. One, um, we believe that church is more than a seat where you look at a stage on a Sunday morning. And so we love knowing that people are here. Um, is there still music going? There it goes. All right. I don't mind a soundtrack to my voice, but that's, it's a little uncomfortable for everybody else. All right. That's real smooth. Um, you fill out those cards. On the back of that card, there's a spot for a prayer request. And every Saturday morning, our elders get together and we pray over these prayer requests. Anything you put on there, um, you can mark on there if it's just confidential. You kind of want it kept quiet and just to have the elders praying over it. Or if you want the rest of the church body to be praying uh, as well. So fill out that connect card. And while you're doing that, just a couple housekeeping items. There's a few different things coming up uh, that we want to make you aware of. One is if you're new around here or uh, even if you've been here for a long time and you're interested in seeing where's New Hope at, what's the vision, where are we headed as a church, we have a gathering that we call Starting Point coming up. And uh, you come to this, there's a home-cooked meal, child care is provided, you get to come. You'll hear from me, other staff members, other leaders about uh, the mission, vision, the values of the church, uh, the direction the church is headed. You can talk through some of the beliefs. What does membership look like? What does it look like to get involved here at New Hope? So you can check out Starting Point. You can register on the website. In addition to that, we have a men's event coming up where there is anyone who's interested can come and join us at uh, the uh, Indy Fuel ice hockey game. Some, there are a few hockey fans, I'm sure, but other people just like uh, fights. Uh, and so they like to watch uh, minor league hockey for that reason. And so there'll be a lot of people uh, joining us. We'd love to have you. Buy the tickets online. You can meet here at the church or there at the arena. It'll be a lot of fun. You can bring your sons. Uh, we'd love to have all the guys come out and join us uh, for that. Uh, let me pray for us, and we will jump in. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 and 5 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you, and we do seek to hear from you. And we know that you can speak clearly to us from your word, and we ask that you would do that this morning. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but uh, it was really good to realize that the sun does, in fact, shine in Indiana. Uh, this morning, uh, waking up, realizing that we're on the verge of spring, and I am more than ready for it personally, uh, for the grass and the trees to start turning uh, green and show signs of life to, for people to recognize what it means to go outside again and enjoy being out uh, and enjoy the weather. Today is supposed to be nice. Uh, I am looking forward to uh, getting with my kids and just being outside a little bit. And uh, one of the things in our family that we also love about spring is that it kind of brings sports seasons to an end in our home. Uh, we do a lot of fall and winter sports, and basketball just ended for us, and so now we have this weird feeling of, like, free evenings, um, and we're not quite sure what to do with it yet, but we figured that out in the spring. And yet, for some of you, you're like, no, it's the opposite for us. Spring is when it kind of ramps up. We love spring, in particular, uh, baseball is here, and many people are excited for that. I saw a friend who posted online this week. Um, he said, I got a major life announcement, and I hate that uh, when people do that, but I thought, I gotta, I'm going for it, and the little more button where you click, and then you can read what they've put, I thought, we're, we got a new ministry, we're going to be moving, we're having a baby, like something good, so I clicked on it, and you have to scroll all the way to the bottom, and it said, major life announcement, major league baseball is actually on my TV, and I just thought, I hate you, I hate social media, um, and yet what's frustrating for me is really kind of enjoyable for a lot of other people. You love this sport. You love the stats, the strategy. 
Uh, baseball is just kind of like a, almost a love language for you. You love Cracker Jacks and hot dogs and singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game and going and watching this extremely long game in this extremely long season. Uh, it is a very long season uh, where only the best hitters still only get a hit three out of ten times. So I'm not really seeing what you love about it, but a lot of people call it our national pastime. And this season in particular, uh, Major League Baseball has a self-inflicted identity crisis on their hands. It's an integrity issue. It stems from the Houston Astros and cheating to get a world championship. In case you missed the news, in 2000, the 2017 World Series champions and last year's American League leader um, were caught in what is called a high-low tech, a high-low tech scheme uh, that got them the World Series title. There was a camera in center field that was clued in on the opposing team's catcher where they would steal signs. Now, stealing signs is as old as baseball. Uh, people have done that for a long time. Uh, they, they would then get this video that would be relayed to the Astros' dugout. And then the players in the dugout would signal the player at the plate uh, through a series of different things. The high-tech part was the camera. The low-tech part was how they signaled their teammates. If it was a breaking ball or a change-up, they would bang on a trash can. I don't know why. That's the low-tech part. That would signal a breaking ball or a change-up is coming. No bang on the trash can, a fastball was coming. They were able to get a World Series championship because of it. And when this kind of, the news broke, I mean, heads were rolling. People were so upset about this uh, that they would do this. And they're really upset because they don't think the punishment was severe enough to, to really signal this out. And yet, cheating and betting on sports is as old as sports itself. I mean, you look back at the history of sports and people were cheating and betting, and they justify it. Many people say, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. That's a common phrase you'll hear. Other people will say, everyone else is doing it. We just needed to be allowed to compete. And in order to compete, you've got to cheat. And so all kinds of phrases and justification of behavior. But the question I have when I'm reading about this, and it's like, when is enough? Like, what, what is the cost of integrity? At what point do we take things too far? I've been a Christian for about 18 years now. I became a Christian as a senior in high school. And uh, when I became a Christian, I had this desire to have uh, some older guys pour into me. Give me some wisdom. Because I didn't have that. My dad, part of my story is my dad was killed in an armed robbery when I was a young boy. So I didn't have that strong, uh, godly Christian male influence. And so when I became a Christian, I thought I need to get this. And so I would seek it out. And I would have these different people that would kind of pour into me for seasons. And I could point back throughout my entire walk with Christ and tell you uh, a series of different men that have uh, instrumentally changed the very trajectory of my life. They've just had a really tremendous influence on who I've become, the, the direction my life went, the kind of dad that I am. They just had a big influence on me. As I look back at that and reflect on it, I can tell you there's a common thread in every single one of the mentors that I've had, every single one of the men that have poured into my life. There's this consistent theme that I would put these words around. There was this teaching that would just come out of every single one of them that just said, hey, if everything I can teach you, you've got to remember this. Everything I can teach you, remember this. And it was this, that we are only as healthy as our secrets. We're only as healthy as our secrets. Now, what these guys were not telling me is that you can't have secrets. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying don't have any secrets, don't, don't keep secrets. What they were saying is, they were saying this, that your own spiritual health, no matter what you do, will be affected by the health of the hidden parts of your life. That's the way it works. Your ability to flourish spiritually is dependent upon the hidden parts and the health of the hidden parts of your life. It's a call to integrity. 
a call to integrity, and there are consequences when we don't have that. Now, it's easy to look out and see a lack of integrity in the Houston Astros. You can look at it and see in the Bernie Madoffs and the Harvey Weinsteins, and look at the headlines. It's everywhere. Lack of integrity, lack of character, lack of moral judgment. We can see it everywhere else. It's a lot harder to look in the mirror and see the hypocrisy in our own decision-making, to see the hidden parts of our life that are eating us apart. It's harder to look internally and see this in our own lives. I I tell you this from, from experience. There are things that we keep hidden that are very difficult, and it is hard to acknowledge it. And then when we do acknowledge it, it's hard not to fall into wanting to justify it. I deserve this. I've worked hard for this. I shouldn't have to go through this. We can justify all kinds of things in an effort to make ourselves feel better about the part of our lives that's hidden and that's really eating us apart. I'm not saying that you can't, that you, you have to do this and do it perfectly all the time, but, but there is a call in Scripture, and a, a lot of times when people preach, it's, a, it's like a fear of, of making people uncomfortable, and yet the Bible has a very clear call to integrity and character that sometimes makes us, uh, us uncomfortable because it, it calls things out of us. Well, this is a theme throughout the entire Bible, from the beginning to the end. And so I want to do uh, two examples here before we get to the New Testament. Let's look at two examples from the Old Testament that really bookend your entire Old Testament. If we go back to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of of the Bible, you see this when God creates man and woman. He creates Adam in his own image out of a deep love for Adam, that he has this deep relationship with him. And then he gives Adam this instruction and he tells him, hey, you can eat of anything, but don't eat. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, Don't eat from that tree. That was an invitation to integrity. I mean, think about it. He is saying, hey, you can do a lot of other things, but you need to make sure that you, you don't do this. You've got to have the character. You've got to have the integrity. Don't do this. So when Adam and Eve do eat from the tree, in Genesis chapter 3, God comes in and the text tells us that God is walking in the coolness of the garden like he was used to. And then God asks a question. Now, anytime God asks a question, just remember this. He knows the answer. He's God. He does not need to ask the question as though he needs to be enlightened. He knows the answer. But he asks what I think is one of the most profound questions in all of Scripture and perhaps in all of history. He says, where are you? Where are you? He knew the answer. But he needed them to understand that they had drifted far from him. Where are you? Where's your heart? What have you done? I gave you a call to integrity and to character, and you've drifted from it. Where are you? It's a profound question. Where's your heart, Adam? Where's your heart, Eve? What happened here? Fast forward to the end of your Old Testament, and the second example is going to come from the curriculum that our um, children's ministry and our student ministry are using right now. They did a big shift in the fall, and they began using a new curriculum, and it's, it's Bible-heavy. I love it. It's teaching the kids Scripture. I've had some great conversations with my own children because of this, the curriculum that's being used. And the last two weeks, I haven't been preaching. I've had the joy of uh, teaching during this hour, the 930 hour, the parenting class. Then the parenting class, the whole purpose of it that's being taught right now is that they would take this curriculum uh, that the kids are studying all the way from uh, young kids all the way through high school, and that the parents would then also learn the same lesson at an adult level so that when you go home, discipleship can happen a little bit easier. I love it. The vision's great. I can't recommend you go into that class enough. I'm not even teaching it every week. It's better when I'm not in there, so you can do that, and then third service will get really, really big. Uh, but we want to invite you to go to that class. But in that class last week, I got to teach through Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament. 
Let me give you just a little bit of a, a, a synopsis of this book of Malachi. God's people had been exiled. They'd been taken from their home, and their entire land had been completely leveled and destroyed, completely destroyed. Then through the work of three people, Zerubbabel, who rebuilt the temple, Ezra, who introduced God's word back to God's people, and Nehemiah, who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, everything is restored. They're brought back out from exile, and they live as God's people again. So then you get to the book of Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, and God's people had drifted. I've said this before. I grew up in Florida on the beach. Yeah, you see why I love uh, your weather. Uh, I was in Florida. If you got in even waist high in the, in the beach and you're tossing a football with some friends, before you know it, 15 minutes, you're just tossing a football. You look up and you're half a mile from where your stuff is. You don't even realize that you've drifted. This is what happens to God's people in the book of Malachi. They've drifted. They've drifted. And Malachi is God's voice to come and say enough is enough. And he calls them out on their character. But then in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, God asks a question to his people. It's a profound question. He says, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? See, the people had stopped tithing. Tithing is when they would give a tenth of their goods, a tenth of their income, if you will, in today's language. They would give a tenth of it. Well, they had stopped doing that, and then they started lying about it and justifying it. Well, we don't have to give this, and I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to give. And Malachi is a reminder that God owns it all anyway, so what are you doing playing with his stuff like that? Like, why lie about it? But then God calls them out of it. And God says to them, why would you rob me? Now, this, is, this verse in particular in your Old Testament really has baffled Hebrew scholars. Hebrew is the language your Old Testament was written in. Because the word he uses for rob is, is only used one other time in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible. And it, it's not a word that's commonly used. The typical word when you rob somebody is to take something that didn't belong to you. The word that Malachi uses, that God is speaking to his people, means to come in and plunder and to destroy and to steal. It's got the imagery of a real powerful nation coming into a really small town and completely pillaging everything, taking it all by force. It's a violent word. So God is saying, why are you violently stealing from me? And people are confused, and God gives them clarity, and he says, I'm talking about your money. You spend so much on yourself. You're not very generous. You don't give. You've got a tight grip on your money. It's become your God. You're filled with a love of money, not a love of God. He kind of calls them out on it. And then there are consequences for their lack of integrity and character. Here's my point. With Adam and Eve and with the Israelites in Malachi's day, the entire, the entire Old Testament and really your entire Bible, it's bookended with the same question, really. I think God asked the same question to Adam and Eve that he does to the Israelites. Where are you? Where are you? Where's your character? Where's your integrity? You've drifted so far from me. And you refuse to see it. You see, this is really important for us to understand as we get into Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 can be a pretty difficult and confusing passage unless you come to understand that this is the same problem that's been going on in the heart of man since the beginning of time. This is the same thing. It's a character and integrity issue. The same issue has been happening all along, so now you get to this passage. So before we jump into chapter 5 and really understand this story of Ananias and Sapphira, let's get some back, background. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can uh, go ahead and open it. We have these Acts journals you can get for this entire series. We're going to be in for quite a while studying through the book of Acts. You can take notes. I want to encourage you, if you want to uh, go to the Lost and Found, get a free Bible. You can get a nicer one there. <laughs> but gra grab a Bible. We're going to start chapter 4, verse 32. Luke writes these words. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. These were the most generous people in the world. This group of people were so extremely generous. Anytime there was a need, they would do what was necessary to meet that need. They did not have a tight grip on their money. They had a tight grip on their relationship with God. They, they just wanted to meet as many needs as possible. And then they didn't view anything as their own, which is a very biblical understanding of your money and your wealth. Nothing you have, is, it, it's all owned by God, and we are stewards that are charged by God to, to be stewards of integrity, to take care of what he's entrusted to us. And you might say, well, no, I've worked hard for everything I've got. Well, so did they, but the ability to work hard was a gift given to them by God that generated their ability to provide, their ability to be generous, to be kind. And then they decided, because, God, you've blessed us, we will, in fact, be a blessing. They shared everything. The text says they didn't view anything as common. I mean, their property, their possessions, everything that they own, their toothbrush. I'm just kidding, not toothbrush. I just want to make sure you're awake. No one's sharing toothbrush, even in church. It's disgusting. If you do that, you need to stop, okay? Look, I read this past week when it comes to generosity. That there are some people that are like a rock. They're as hard as a rock. And sure, God can get things out of them, but it takes a hammer. And there's just, even then, you're just getting chips and sparks. Other people, though, they're more like a sponge. And you can get things out of them, but even when God wants to get something out of a sponge, he has to squeeze it out of it. And then there's other people, when it comes to generosity, they're like a honeycomb. Generosity just seems to drip off of them. And the question here is, like, which one are you? See, these people had learned they didn't have a tight grip on their money. They'd loosened the grip on their material things and tightened the grip on the mission God gave them for their lives. Like, we're, we're called to live this way. This is the way I'm called to live my life. And so now Luke is going to give us two examples. One of a great example of how this was lived out specifically, and then one that's not as good. And then we'll ask some questions of the text. Look what he says in verse 36. Thus, or because of this, out of this community, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This guy Barnabas, son of encouragement, is going to appear six times in the book of Acts. We're not going to read about him again until chapter 9. We kind of get a glimpse of him right here in this chapter. And he's mentioned for a variety of reasons. Luke is making sure that we understand why he would then later on be entrusted. Later on, he's entrusted to take money and deliver it to the Jerusalem church. Why was he entrusted with that money? Well, we get a glimpse of that here. Because he didn't have a tight grip on his money. He did not have a love for money at all. He had a love, a deep love and appreciation for God. And he just wanted to be used by God. And so he said, I've got this field. It can be used. The field is not necessary for me right now. I can sell it. I got all the proceeds. And he goes and he gives all of the proceeds to the apostles to meet the needs of the people that are around him. No questions asked. Let me summarize it this way. I think with Barnabas, you have an example of someone where if God were to say, Barnabas, where are you? Barnabas with confidence could say, God, I'm right here and I'm all yours. But now he's going to give us an example that's not as strong. Look at Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But, so in contrast to Barnabas, a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Anyone else want to come up and preach? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yet this young Jewish couple, young, we don't know their age, this Jewish couple, who see, I think, what happened with Barnabas. See, if Barnabas would have sold this land and given the proceeds, to, he would have been honored within the community. They're part of this community. They're part of the people in this community. And they would have seen Barnabas, not only his generosity, but then the honor that came from him being so generous. And can we just be human just for a minute here and not fake it? That's pretty appealing. Not just the generosity piece, but it is very appealing to be honored for the things that you do. And I think they've seen this and they said, hey, but man, he is so generous and he was honored by everybody for being generous. We have some land too, and we're going to sell that land too. And for whatever reason, whatever reason, we don't know their motives. It doesn't say exactly what their motives were. They felt the need to hold back some of the proceeds of the land. They sold the land. They got all the money. They said, well, let's just tell everybody that we gave it all, but we're only going to hold back some of it. It's not that much. We're going to hold back a little bit, but we'll just make it look like we gave everything and everything will just kind of work out fine. And, he, and here's the thing. When it comes to their desire to hold back some of the money, Peter makes it really clear in the text that that's totally fine. Hold back some of the money. It's your land. He said it was your land to begin with. I mean, it's God's land, but he had gifted it to you, and so you do what you want with it. You're in charge of that land. You could have held back a little bit of it. You could have held back a lot of it. You could have sold part of the land and not all the land. You could have got creative with this thing. However you wanted to get creative with it, it was not about the amount of money given and the amount of money held back. The problem was in the lie. The problem was in that he came into this community and began to allow Satan to deceive him and then deceive other people. The problem was not in the selling of the land, the amount given. It was absolutely in the lie. So here's the thing. As this story continues, it has a very similar feel to Malachi. The word that he uses for lie, that he'll continue to use for lie, it means to plunder or steal from. So the way they're lying is very similar to the way that God's people in Malachi were robbing. It's a very similar feel to this. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. He says, hey, tell me, is this what happened? Now, it's interesting. It's a pretty intense moment. She comes in. It's pretty intense. Everything's quiet. She hasn't heard. She doesn't know what happened before. Everybody understood. Snitches get stitches. I'm kidding. They, again, just want to make sure you're awake. That's not what happened, okay? But people were in awe of what took place. So they didn't say anything. So she comes in. I want you to picture this just for a moment. What do you do in that moment? I mean, it's really easy to read it in the story and say, this is what she should do. This is how she should do it. But man, it's hard. You put yourself in that situation and you say, hey, in this moment, do I go along with the person who I was going along with before? Do I come clean? Do I tell the truth? Two quick things about this. Ladies, wives, you are never, ever called to follow your husband into sin. Never. You may follow him into a mistake. 
You may follow him into a, a, an unintentional decision that's made, but you are not called to follow him into sin. You know why? Because just like Sapphira faces God right here, you too will have to for your decision. Now, on the flip side of that, husbands, men, this is a case study. And you understanding that your sin never, ever only affects you. Sin will destroy the lives of everyone around you, not just you. It's never only about you. Verse 9. Peter responds to her after she lies. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at her feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her alongside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Now, if you're like me, there's questions that are swirling around in your mind, and we can't answer all of them. I'm going to take three questions and just kind of help us better understand what is going on in this passage. Question number one is this. Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie? Why did they lie? Why would they lie like that? Why not just tell the truth? Sins like this, sins like lying, they always go deeper. As in my experience of meeting with people, when we begin to talk about the surface issue of what's going on, there's usually something deeper going on, and it just takes a little while to peel back some layers to see, okay, what's at the heartbeat of what's going on here? And these lies here, they went all the way down to the deepest parts of their heart. Lies like these, like the ones that they're telling, jealousy, lying, cheating, not being generous, they're all smoke from a fire. They're all just the smoke, and the source is a fire, and the fire is what you're actually worshiping. It's idolatry. And our problem is not to just push the smoke out of our face and to stop lying. The problem's not, you were lying, now just stop lying. The problem is to get deeper and figure out what's going on in your heart. The problem is not push the smoke out of my face. The problem is go put the fire out. The fire is just going to spread, and it's just going to get worse, and it's going to destroy things. And the text here, both chapter 4 and chapter 5, they contrast these two things. In chapter 4, you've got this group of people that are characterized by being filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what fills them up in integrity and character and joy and really being content. And then you've got being filled with Satan is the other contrast. In chapter 5, it's Satan filling the heart, and it's just characterized by a, being discontent and a lack of joy and upset. And he's contrasting the two of these two things here. Look back at verse 3. Verse 3 says that why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? This is the first post-cross appearance of Satan in the, in the New Testament. It's the first time he's back on the scene. So this is a really important moment. It's a big deal. And they've allowed him to fill his heart. Satan's strategy before was to kill Jesus. Satan's strategy now is to infiltrate the church and kill the church from the inside out. That's what he's wanted to do, and that's what he's beginning to do in this moment. He's, he's filling the heart of one person. So question number two, then, is this. Why did God kill them? Why strike them down? Why did they die? That's a really hard question. But Satan has now infiltrated this church and wants to spread through this church. Remember, the church just got started. This whole thing is just starting. And Satan has entered this picture. It's the first time he's appeared on the scene since the cross. And so a statement is going to be made here. It's not common. This doesn't happen. Like, does this mean every single time I lie? No, that's not what it means. This was an example. They were used. God used their sin to set an example. And the example that God is using in, that to this new covenant people who now encounter the enemy that they were familiar with from the old covenant, this new covenant people need to understand that in the new covenant, God still takes holiness very, very seriously. Think about it. 
they, if he had allowed Satan to fill their hearts and just they get away with it. Now the door is open to other people allowing Satan to work in their hearts. And before you know it, like a cancer, he has spread through the entire church, killing it. Now, God uses this moment to say, no, I still take holiness extremely serious. He's going to use their deceit. He's still a holy God. He still takes holiness seriously. And he's reminding the church, you need to take your holiness very seriously. And so that leads to the question number three of the text. What are we supposed to learn from this? Like, what's the big takeaway from Ananias and Sapphira for our lives? A lot of people will go to a lot of different things. I, I think it's, you know, tithe or die. I'm kidding. That's not what it is either. <laughs> we thought about titling the sermon that, and I thought, no, I just don't know that that's uh, going to be taken so well, you know? <laughs> Let me assure you, that is not what the text is saying, okay? Um, that's, what, that's the only soundbite that I'm going to hear, right? Rob said, um, I think the lesson is simple. It's the same lesson throughout all of Scripture. Here it is. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. And he goes to great lengths to get it. The creator of the universe wants to have a personal and intimate relationship with you. God himself wants to have this balance in his relationship with you of intimacy and reverence. The Bible calls this the fear of the Lord. And when the Bible talks about fear, it's not talking about terror. Verse 11 in our text today, it's not talking about a great terror, a great resistance to God came upon them. No, this fear of the Lord came inside of all of them. There's this balance of intimacy and reverence. The best definition I've heard of the fear of the Lord is this. Biblical fear is a mix. It's a mix of awe and intimacy. Now, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a book by a man named John Piper who wrote a book called The Pleasures of God. And in this book, uh, the reason I'm reading is because I can't say it better. I can't say it better at all. He describes what the fear of the Lord is with an analogy. Put yourself in this situation. He says these words. Suppose that you were exploring an unknown glacier in the dead of winter. So you're up exploring this. Just as you reach the sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, you see a terrible storm breaking in. The wind is so strong from this storm, you are completely confident. As this fear rises in your heart, you are confident that it's going to blow you off the side of the cliff. But in the midst of this storm, you discover there's a cleft in the ice where you can get in there and hide. Here you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on, and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Not everything that we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. And so it is with God. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Hope turns fear into trembling and peaceful wonder, and fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. See, this is the fear of the Lord. It's this perfectly safe place to be when you recognize his power and his holiness. I don't know where you're at, and I don't. Look, I mean, look around. There's so many people in the room, it's hard to tell. Maybe for you, this really is about money, like it was with Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe it is. And, and you portray yourself as this generous person, and you kind of fake it, and you say you're tithing, and you say you're giving, and you tell other people what it means to tithe and to give, and yet you've been holding back. 
and not been honest with it. You've got this secret, and remember, we're only as healthy as our secrets. You've got this dark secret you haven't been giving. Maybe for you, it's snow. You, you portray yourself as having this wonderful marriage, and you can put the best pictures on Instagram with the, the rest of everybody else, but you've got this secret you've been holding on to. It's a painful secret that will have painful consequences, and you just kind of hold on to it. You can justify it, and you can portray yourself a certain way, but you know deep down this is eating you apart. And the God of the universe, I, I do know this about every one of us, the God of the universe is looking at your heart, the God who loves you deeply, deeply and profoundly, the God who went through all these lengths just to make sure you knew he sees your heart, he loves your heart, and he wants your heart. He's asking each and every one of us, no matter where we're at, the same question. Where are you? Where are you? And I hope we can answer like Barnabas. God, we're right here. And we're all yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the call of Scripture to live lives of integrity and character. But God, we recognize in our sin, we can't do it. We need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit. Father, we need you to work in and through us, make us aware of what we've been blinded to, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us the courage and the boldness that is promised by your Holy Spirit to step into honesty, to step away from hypocrisy, to step into integrity, to not compromise our character on the altar of our comfort. Help us understand clearly that in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, in all of your word, you have called us to be holy, a holy people set apart. We are powerless to do this without you. So through the work of your spirit in our lives, would you help us come to the place where we recognize you're asking, where are you? We might have the confidence to know because of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we are exactly where we need to be. And we pray for this in Jesus' name.